Allow me to just dive in and uh, read the passage out for us, the passage from the Bible that we will be looking at. It's coming up uh, on screen. Uh, I'm reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 11. Um, a lot of things we sung in the songs you will see uh, in this passage. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over, the, over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the word of God. This is a passage I want to be looking at uh, this morning. And I really want to focus on this one verse right at the end of the passage that we read. This is the angel telling the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy. The birth of Jesus Christ was designed to bring great joy into our lives. And this was not promised to us as one moment of joy or joy only around the time of our Christmas celebrations. No, Jesus came to us to give great joy through all of our lives and beyond. That's the promise of Christmas, great joy. But sadly, very few of us can say that we have lived through 2020 with great joy. We did not. We all had our struggles. And as I pondered over what to preach on Christmas Day, I felt that this most basic promise of great joy in Christ Jesus would be the most appropriate uh, sermon for, for today. And so I want to preach on this good news of great joy. Of all the sermons that I preached this year, if I had to pick one sermon that I personally need to hear the most, I would pick uh, uh, today's sermon on joy. I need joy preached to me. I need to preach joy to myself. Now, quite honestly, joy doesn't come easily or naturally to me. Sadness, worry, anxiety, all of those things come very naturally to me, but joy doesn't. And so I'm still learning to enjoy this gospel Christmas promise of great joy. 
And I guess I need to hear this good news of great joy more than anybody else. And uh, so what I'd like to do today is simply draw out five observations about this Christmas promise of great joy that the birth of Jesus Christ brings for every one of us. And as this verse says, for all the people. And as I do that, I pray and I trust that God's Holy Spirit will minister to each of our hearts in the unique way that each of us needs to be touched. So five observations uh, about this great joy. The first observation, joy is a gift we do not ask for enough. Sometime ago, Aji asked me a question. What do you want? If God asks you right now, what do you want? What will you ask God for? That was her question to me. It wasn't an easy question to answer. And I still find myself going back and and, and reflecting on that question quite frequently and thinking about what do I really want? And I have to confess that joy is not there in the top 10 things on my list. Joy is a gift. It's not a gift we long for enough. Joy is not a gift we ask for enough. We all ask God for things that we think will give us joy, but we rarely ask for joy itself. Think of the shepherds to whom the angel appeared. And if the angel had asked them, what do you want? What do you think the shepherds would have answered? We we can only guess. Uh, I I guess they would have probably asked for uh, more sheep that will make more babies so they have more sheep. And maybe they they would have asked for more wool or or maybe more milk and cheese. Maybe better uh, pastures for their sheep to graze on or more shepherds pie perhaps. Would they have asked for great joy? We don't know, but going by our our own experience, maybe not. And I guess, like them, if God were to ask us, what do you want? We would probably ask for a better job, a better home, a life partner, more savings, a good life for our children, and all of that. Uh, Some of us may also ask God to bless our nation. Uh, We may ask God to lead millions to faith in Christ. We may ask for God to heal our world. But I wonder if we would ask God for great joy. But this is what God offers us through the birth of Christ Jesus. Great joy. But as we've been reflecting, joy is a gift we do not ask for enough. Think about this for one moment, please. Could it be, could it be that we are not joyful simply because we don't want it enough? Could it be that we are not joyful simply because we don't want it enough? Let's face it, aren't we all too busy being successful that we forget to be joyful? Aren't we all underestimating 
the blessing of joy. Joy is a gift we do not ask for enough. And that's the first reflection I wanted to draw out for us on joy. Second, our salvation is the only fountain from which real joy gushes forth. Our salvation is the only fountain from which real joy gushes forth. I mean, this is your first time in a church and you're an explorer. If you're wondering what is this salvation, it's pretty simple. Salvation is, is a gift that is given to imperfect us to be absolutely one with a perfect God. And Jesus, by his death and resurrection, um, bridged the gap between imperfection and perfection. He bridged the gap between sin and holiness. He bridged the gap between us and God so that when we believe in him, we can be with God forever. That's, that's salvation. And this is the only fountain from which real joy gushes forth. There's something really interesting in what the angel is proclaiming to the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. There's something a little surprising in this verse. Don't you think the verse should actually read, I bring you good news of great salvation for all the people. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? Did he not come to save us from our sins by dying on the cross in our place? Did he not come us to give us a great salvation? But the angel in its, in its Christmas proclamation is using the word joy instead of the word salvation. In some places like this passage in the Bible, uh, the words joy and salvation are actually used interchangeably. In many places, uh, the Bible kind of talks about joy and salvation as, as one unit, highly interlinked. It's, it's almost as if joy is inseparable from salvation. David prayed this in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, talks about the inexpressible joy that inevitably accompanies salvation. He does this in 1 Peter. Uh, let me read that for us. Though you do not see Jesus Christ, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy and salvation are almost always linked. At one time, Jesus called 72 of his disciples and he, he sent them two by two to go and serve the poor and help the needy. And uh, the disciples were extremely successful on their, on their mission trip. They came back really excited and, and they exclaimed to Jesus, look, Lord, uh, even the demons uh, are subject to us in your name. And when we, we were able to heal people who were uh, possessed with demons. Now, Jesus celebrated their success with them, but he also taught them an important lesson on joy. Jesus told them, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that moment of great ministry success or great career success in our context, Jesus is saying, don't draw your ultimate joy from ministry or career success. Even in the height of career 
family or ministry success, Jesus is telling his disciples, draw your joy from your salvation. In other words, Jesus is saying, do not look for joy in any other place except in the fountain of your salvation. Because joy from every other source will eventually fizzle out, leaving us distraught and disappointed. And I think the year 2020 has helped us to see which fountains we have actually been drinking from. And that brings me uh, to the third reflection on joy that I wanted to draw out for us. Third, the third reflection. Our anxieties and worries of 2020 have shown us where our joy truly lies. Our anxieties and worries of 2020 have shown us where our joy truly lies. It's not as if we were all doing well in 2020 and it is not as if we were all doing well until 2020 came and messed us up real bad. I've I've been saying this, I've, I've said this before as well. 2020 did not mess us up. 2020 merely brought to the surface the sin and the weakness and the failings that was always inside of us. And so the real question is, are we willing to see our mess that 2020 has brought to the surface? And I think it'll be very helpful to ask ourselves this question. What do our worries and anxieties of 2020 tell us about which fountain we have been trying to find joy in? Trace the lines behind your worries and your anxieties. Where does it take you? That which we worried about most in 2020 is perhaps where we were functionally finding the most joy in before 2020. Think about it. That which we worried about the most in 2020 is perhaps where we were functionally finding the most joy in before 2020. And whatever that was, it has obviously failed us in 2020. Anything except Christ. If we find our joy in things that could be taken away, then our joy too can and will be taken away. But this does not mean that we cannot love anyone or anything other than Christ. It only means that we should not love anything more than Christ. A very wise man once told me, love small things small, love medium things medium, love large things large, but love Christ above them all. You see, the small things we love small will still one day disappoint us. The medium things we love medium will still one day disappoint us. The large things we love large will still one day disappoint us. Even then, even then, if we love Christ above them all, we will never lose our joy because Christ Jesus will never fail us or disappoint us. If he is indeed our greatest love, then he is also indeed our greatest joy 
and therefore no sorrow, however big, can crush us. That brings me to the fourth observation on Christmas joy in this passage. And this is the fourth observation. The promise of Christmas is of joy in a broken world. The promise of Christmas is not joy in a perfect world. That's not the promise. The promise of Christmas is joy in a broken world. Let's go back to the shepherds. The shepherds did not become kings after the first Christmas, did they? They were still shepherds even after the first Christmas, but they were filled with joy. I'm sure the shepherds continued having all the shepherd problems they had before they met and worshipped the baby Jesus in the manger. Even after that, I'm sure they lost a few sheep. Even after that, even after meeting with Jesus, they still had to fight away the wolves. They still had to work hard to find pasture for the sheep to graze. The pain and the suffering of a broken world did not yet go away. But the joy of salvation that the shepherds experienced was greater than any other suffering. The promise of Christmas is of joy in a broken world. And here's the beauty about Christian joy. You see, a lot of Christian blessing is saved up for the ultimate, not here for the immediate. They're not for this broken world. They're saved up for the perfect world to come when Christ Jesus comes back again. Take perfect health, for example. That's saved up for eternity when Jesus Christ comes back and he, he, he makes the world beautiful again. A new world, a new heaven, a new earth where there is no more sin, no more sickness, where people do not hurt each other, where people do not fight with each other, where people do not abuse each other. Jesus is coming back to create a beautiful world. And it is only in this, in that world to come that we will see perfect health. So perfect health, the promise of perfect health and eternal life is in the world to come, not, not here. The promise of no more sin, no more conflict, the promise of no more poverty, the promise of no more injustice. They're all for the world to come. They're not yet here. But joy, Christian joy, gospel joy, we get to enjoy it here. And the promise of joy is not just for the ultimate. The promise of joy is also for the immediate. Christian joy is very much for the present broken world. And the Bible is full of encouragement and assurances and exhortations to experience this great joy here and now, to experience this joy that comes from the fact that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, bearing the punishment for all of our failings and all of our weaknesses and all of our sins. And this joy that we have in Christ Jesus, this joy is capable of rising above every circumstance of this broken world. The Macedonian church uh, in the first century AD is a great example 
that the Apostle Paul holds us for us to see this joy in action. Let me read that uh, a short passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Uh, 2 Corinthians is a book in the Bible in the New Testament. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Consider this. The Macedonian church, Paul is telling us, endured extreme poverty. They endured severe affliction. And yet, they had an abundance of joy. Let's try and see this in our, in, in our context. We think it's impossible to have joy without money. We think it's impossible to have joy if we don't get the kind of increments that that we are hoping or we feel we deserve we we get. We feel that without comfort, we cannot have real joy. But the Macedonian church, they had an abundance of joy in the midst of severe affliction. The Macedonian church is not meant to be an exception. This is supposed to be the new normal for every follower of Jesus ever since Jesus was born. The new normal for all of us after Jesus was born is joy despite trials. Joy in the midst of trials. This is is impossible for us on our own. But this joy comes to us from God and it comes in mysterious ways. It often also comes through hardship. God is working in us. And I really believe 2020 is an invitation from God for us to grow in this kind of deep, deep, deep joy that will rise above all the hardships and pains of the broken world. 2020, I really believe, was God training us to grow in experiencing real joy. He allowed all the hardship so that we will learn to experience real joy despite and in and through the hardship. And some of us did do that. Many of us, we were able to experience this joy through the hardship. And so so let me apply this. We may still lose a job. There may still be more pay cuts to come. We could still see, let me correct myself, we will still see a lot more grief in our lives. We will see grief. But we can still live in joy. That's that's the fourth reflection. The promise of Christmas is of joy in a broken world. Joy in the midst of hardship. And that brings us to the fifth and the last reflection on joy. It is wrong to assume that people enduring sorrow cannot be joyful. That's the last thing I want to draw for us. It is wrong to assume that people enduring sorrow cannot be joyful. Biblical joy does not presume the absence of sorrow. Biblical joy does not presume the absence of sorrow. In receiving the Christmas promise of joy, 
uh, most of us, we often wrongly assume that this promise of joy means that we are never going to face sorrow ever again. That's not true. That's not, that's not the promise at all. The true test of biblical joy is not the absence of sorrow, but the presence of joy even in the midst of grief. Let me repeat that. The true test of biblical joy is not the absence of sorrow, but the presence of joy even in the midst of grief. I know a pastor who lost his wife in the year 2020. Uh, They were both very young, late 30s, at the most early 40s. I knew both of them well. I knew the pastor very well. um, I I preached along with him for two days at a conference. Um, I I was was there at his church. I I knew him quite well. And I'd I'd seen him and his wife together uh, several times in several settings. And you could tell they were a special couple. You could tell they loved each other dearly. Um, They have a child who was not yet 12. And they were serving God well. And they were faithful in everything that God called them to. But in an unexpected turn of events, she passed away in the year 2020. How do you cope with something like that? This pastor, he's still joyful. Of course, there is grief. The pain of the loss he endured it's not going to go away for years to come. Maybe even maybe that pain will never go away for the rest of his life. The mourning, you see, is real. But every time I talk to him after that, I can see that the joy is still very much there. What this pastor endured. Uh, Paul, an amazing disciple of Jesus, he describes this so pragmatically. In describing this reality, Paul does not overstate the joy. He does not exaggerate the joy. And Paul also does not understate the sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, again, another another book in the New Testament, he simply says, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's Paul for you. I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Again, like the Macedonian church, we think that apostle, the Apostle Paul is more an exception than a rule. There are a few people who can experience this joy, but that this kind of joy, rejoicing, even amid sorrow, is not for everyone. No, that's wrong. This gift of being joyful in the midst of sorrow is not an exceptional gift. It is a general gift that is given to everyone who believes in Jesus. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, even if you've never read the Bible, you've heard of this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus repeatedly used the word blessed. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word blessed comes from the Greek word makarios. Now, some translators translate makarios 
as happy or joyful. Now, this is wrong. Uh, Macarius is, is not only happy, it's not only joy. Macarius uh, definitely improves the idea of joy, but it's more than just joy. It includes the idea of happiness or with, a, with a godly covering and a godly approval. And, and, uh, and, and there's more to that one. It's not just joy, but it includes joy. So when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, it, in, it includes the meaning happy or joyful are those who mourn. You see, what Jesus was hinting at is a godly sorrow that actually leads to true joy. We also see the psalmist suggesting this in Psalm 125. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. All through the Bible, we see this pattern of mourning turning into dancing, of sorrow producing joy. Paul again expands on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So if godly sorrow produces repentance, then godly sorrow produces joy. Because we've been seeing that salvation is the ultimate fountain of joy. So you see, there is a godly sorrow that actually produces joy. Now, don't hear me wrong. I, I'm not being um, uh, sadistic here, you know. Uh, not all sorrow produces joy. You know, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not sounding melancholy or, or, or depressed. Not all sorrow produces joy. Worldly sorrow, like this verse is telling us, does not produce joy. Selfish sorrow does not produce joy. Self-indulgent sorrow does not produce joy. But only godly sorrow produces joy. So what is this godly sorrow that produces joy? And, and how is this godly sorrow that produces joy different from worldly sorrow that produces death? It sounds like a complicated question, but the answer is simple, really. To experience godly sorrow, we need to learn to grieve like God grieves. That's godly sorrow. When we grieve like God grieves, that's godly sorrow, which produces great joy. Let me give us a couple of examples to help us see how God grieves and how we can grieve as God grieves. When a loved one passes away, we grieve his death. But in that moment, we also grieve death itself. We grieve the sin that caused death. We grieve that Adam and Eve, by their sin, marred the beauty of God's original world, where death was not part of the creation. Our sin, our rebellion caused death. So when we grieve someone's death, if we are only grieving that person's death, that's worldly sorrow. But when we are grieving death itself, then we're grieving as God grieves. Here's another example. When we lose a job, we grieve our job loss. 
But if we also grieve all job loss, that's grieving like God grieves. That's more than mere selfish grief. If in our grief, we also feel the grief of millions without a job, if in our grief of a job loss, if we also grieve along with our own grief, if we feel the grief of millions who are living in poverty, if we grieve the women who, because they don't have a job or they have no money, have been trafficked and sold and abused into the, into the sex trade. When we grieve along with our own job loss, when we grieve that God's creation calling of joyful and meaningful work has been interrupted by sin and the wickedness and evil of, of, of mankind. That's godly grief. So to be crushed only by our own joy, job loss is worldly grief. But in our grief, to also feel the pain of others, that's godly sorrow. But how exactly does this godly sorrow produce great joy? How does godly sorrow produce the kind of great joy the angel promised the shepherds? Again, I have a simple answer to that question. Just follow the pathway God took in his grief and you will find God's redemptive joy. Just follow the pathway that God took in his grief and you will find God's redemptive joy. God did not merely mourn in his grief over sin. He moved. He moved in his grief to heal the world by sending Jesus Christ, his son. So if you follow the pathway God took in his grief over the sin and the brokenness of the world, you will find on that pathway that God took in his grief, you will find his beloved son, Christ Jesus, hanging on a cross. Jesus Christ the Son of God, truly and obediently followed the pathway of the Father's grief in order to bring to us God's redemptive joy. You see, the child in the manger is only the first step that the Son took to follow the pathway of God's grief. The ultimate step that he was born for was the cross. Christ Jesus died on the cross bearing the punishment for every one of your sins and mine and the sins of anyone in this world who would believe in him and would come to him for forgiveness and salvation. God's plan to bring great joy to this world necessarily involved great sorrow for his beloved son Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he set the precedent for this gospel pattern that we must always remember. The good news of great joy that the angel proclaimed to the shepherds, this good news of great joy comes to us through the darkest sorrow of the grave. Because Jesus Christ died in sorrow, and rose again in joy, we have a joy that can overcome every sorrow. 
in Jesus, in Jesus, we have a joy that has been tested by the sorrow of death itself. And this joy has overcome the sorrow of death by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, a joy that has not been tested by sorrow is a superficial joy. It's a shallow joy. It, it, it can go away anytime. It may not last. But we have been given a joy that has faced and overcome the greatest sorrow of death itself. Because Jesus died in sorrow and rose again in joy, we have a joy that can overcome every sorrow. This is the joy that the angel proclaimed to the shepherds. This is the joy that the birth of Jesus Christ brings to everyone, to all people in this world who would come to believe in him. Let us pray. Father, we worship you. And we, Lord, we say we need this joy. Uh, I need this joy. It, it's all good to preach about this joy, but, but I know in my own heart, Lord, that I need to grow uh, in appropriating this joy that has already been given to me in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. Would you help every one of us grow in appropriating this joy that has already been given to us by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.